It's the lens, it's the lens, it's the lens, gotta live diverse. It's the lens, it's the lens, it's the lens, live diverse. You are listening to The Lens Living Diverse, a podcast brought to you by the CNIB Advocacy Team. Join Nisha, Vivi, and I as we speak to individuals with intersecting identities who live with sight loss as they share their unique stories. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The Lens Living Diverse. I am your host for today, joined by my lovely co-host, Vivi. Hi, everybody. Great to be back. Great to be with you, Ben, and super excited about our guest today. Exactly. And our guest is a close friend, a work friend, I would say, um, once again, part of the advocacy and accessibility family, Steph Pilon. So, Steph, how are you doing today? I'm well, Ben. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. I'm doing great. And we're so happy to have you on the Lens Living Diverse. This has been um, months or even a year in the making. <laughs> happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're, we're so glad to have you here. So uh, before we get started and we have an amazing conversation with you, Steph, we're just wondering if you could share some of your intersecting identities. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I do identify as blind. I've been completely blind um, since birth. Um, I do use she, her pronouns. So I identify as as a woman. Um, I am uh, Caucasian. I'm white as far as my heritage. Um, And I am also a member of the uh, 2S LGBTQ community. I identify as uh, pansexual or bisexual, depending on who I'm talking to. Um, But generally speaking, I, I use the term pansexual when um, describing my my sexual orientation. Um, And I'm also a neo-pagan, so um, some people would consider that as far as intersectionality, um, as far as my religious beliefs. I just want to say that one of the pleasures for me working on the lens is that when we work with the phenomenal colleagues that we do, we get to see how they are in a work capacity. And I often wonder what it would be like to have a conversation with them outside of work and to really get to know them and listen to their story and take a deep dive into who they are. And I'm so happy today that we get that opportunity with Steph because I have worked with Steph on a couple of projects and she is definitely one of the people who I would love to share a meal, a dessert, uh, a lengthy conversation with. So I'm so pleased that she's able to join us today to do that. And Steph, I just wanted to start by asking if you would unpack the definitions of pansexual and bisexual for us a bit, just for our listening audience, and also for me, um, who may think they know what those terms mean, and um, just want some clarity on what those terms are, if you don't mind sharing a bit. Absolutely. So these are terms that are kind of constantly evolving. And we all know that language, um, whether it's dealing with with race, with the LGBTQ community, with gender, um, there's always kind of new new terms popping up. So um, when I kind of first uh, began to identify as a member of the community, I used the term um, bisexual, which was really common at the time. And that is basically... um, and there are there are various definitions of this and various ways of looking at it. But the way I looked at it at the time is that I could be attracted to kind of either gender, male or female. Um, and that was something that I identified with and understood. Um, there are people who uh, continue to use that term who may be attracted to people in other parts of the gender binary. So there are people who use the term bisexual who may be attracted to um, someone who is transgender, so who may not kind of fit into that male or female um, kind of binary system. Um, And so some have criticized the term bisexual because it does imply that there are only two genders. And so that's kind of the big difference uh, with pansexual. Pansexual um, very much is looking at um, sexuality as a continuum rather than kind of, you know, uh, either or. And so can be attracted to anybody along the gender um, kind of spectrum. Um, So people who are 
who identify as pansexual may be attracted to someone regardless of their gender, whether they be male, female, or somewhere in between. So the pansexual, um, basically, basically what that term does is it reiterates that idea that gender is a spectrum and that someone's sexual orientation basically could include anyone on that spectrum um, if they identify as pansexual. Thanks. That is very helpful to have those terms clarified. I appreciate that. As Vivi was making mention, uh, this is why it's it's so great to have individuals like yourself to educate the listeners as well as us, for sure. So uh, even making mention, so there was multiple different identities that you uh, mentioned in your introduction. So I'm even just wondering, I, I like to ask the the guests, like, did you ever find that your different intersecting identities clashed at all? Absolutely. To back up for a, a moment, when I was younger, um, I identified as um, Christian and was very um, was very religious um, and followed that particular path. And the path of Christianity that I chose, because I don't want to speak in broad generalizations, I do know that there are... Um, Christians that have a variety of political beliefs. So um, when I when I talk about the church, I'm talking about my experiences and uh, the things that I saw and, and not wanting to imply that everyone who follows this religion um, has these beliefs. So do want to kind of give that disclaimer. But one of the challenges that I had growing up um, was that my religious identity at the time uh, made being part of the LGBTQ community very challenging. Um, so there was a time where I had to kind of reconcile my sexual orientation and my religion, and I ended up um, choosing to uh, to find a different religious path. And that was my uh, my choice after, after struggling with that for some time. Um, but that was a, a bit of a challenge. And then the other challenge that I've had, and this this was more of an external rather than an internal kind of struggle, I think, was around my sexual orientation and my identity as someone with a disability, someone who was blind. Mm -hmm. And the challenge here wasn't so much that I had conflict, but that society seemed to kind of feel that I had to pick one or the other. There's this kind of strange thing mm -hmm. that society does with folks with disabilities, I think, um, where we tend to kind of... they, they have a disability that's it that's their identity that's where it stops um and so there were there were times um when i was kind of um starting to come up come out and that kind of thing where people kept questioning what i knew about myself so i would say that for example, I was attracted to women and they would say, well, maybe that's just because you're blind. Maybe you're not really mm -hmm. sure. Uh, you know, maybe you should think more about that. And so there was this kind of idea that because I was blind, I couldn't fit into that community. Um, even to the point, I remember going, I was in university and I was helping to run a pride group. And I remember being at a table, we were just giving out information and that with, with some, uh, some friends and colleagues and that, and uh, someone approached me me at the table and basically said implied that I shouldn't be there so told mm. me or asked me um do you know where you are and I was a little confused I'm like you know in in space or what exactly are you asking and they said do you know what this table is and I said yes it's you know the fried Nipissing Pride, I was going to Nipissing University, uh, the Nipissing Pride table, would you like, you know, a cookie? Would you like some information? Mm. And then said, well, to the person with me, how dare you corrupt the blind person? She shouldn't be here. So there was this kind of idea. And so I got a lot of messaging around that. Um, and then so that made it a little bit difficult for me to unpack um, around my identity as someone blind, as well as my identity as someone uh, queer at the time. Yeah, and it definitely is a hint of ableism, like uh, for someone who's able-bodied and part of the 2S LGBTQ community, it's almost like that was their choice. They know what they're doing, right? And that's a perfect example how it's just like, oh my gosh, you just don't know. Maybe you confused for a guy or whatever. And and that's that's a prime example for sure. And yeah. That is a very disturbing story, Steph, I have to say, because it's like you were essentialized to your blindness and the fact that you were 
literally blind that is not able to engage with the world visually through the means that many people in the world do that rendered you metaphorically blind or blind in other respects and in addition meaning that you had no agency because of this metaphorical blindness meaning you you couldn't even have the power to decide who you were attracted to sexually or in some way you were mistaken um, because of your blindness that you didn't have the authority to make these kinds of decisions for yourself or in some way your blindness was the cause of you being misguided in mm -hmm. your sexuality and, and who you were attracted to and I find that very disturbing and disappointing and just mm -hmm. again like Ben is saying a way that people with the lived experience of disability are essentialized or rendered two-dimensional and always in reference to the able-bodied world around them. Exactly. And I think that's, that's exactly what it is, Vivi. I think that people get stuck because the way that you know, most people who use sight as, you know, a very important sense that they have, when they think about attraction, um, especially initial attraction, I mean, definitely, um, once you get to know someone, you, you're, you know, attracted to their personality, or you're, you, you get to, you fall in love with them. But that initial attraction for a lot of sighted people is visual. Um, and so yeah. I think that's where people get stuck around the, kind of sexuality and disability or particularly in this case with with vision loss that kind of intersection um people get stuck because they figure okay well if you can't see how are you going to know who you're attracted to so mm -hmm. of course there are other factors as those of us who are blind um uh, particularly those of us with 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 no sight would would know or very little sight that we you know there are things about people's voices we get to know people and then become attracted to them um and and that kind of thing and you know it's 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 possible for us to tell but there would be people who might assume that because we're not able to physically see the person that oh well maybe you don't know and that's why you think you're attracted to to women uh, and I think that's where they they were coming from so I understood where it was coming from but it made it very confusing for me kind of trying to figure out my own how I felt about things when people were like well that can't be true um, it kind of makes you question what you you know know in your own mind and heart to be true. Right, exactly. In in this hyper visual, visual culture, right, it's all about returning the gaze. So mm -hmm. if you can't visually receive the gaze, then you can't return the gaze. And then maybe you don't know who you are gazing at, which may present a problem for you, right? Exactly. So yeah. this, this, you don't know who you're attracting and you don't know who is attracted to you, but you're right. Like there are other indicators other than the visual that we utilize to convey those same things and receive those same messages. It's the hyper visual culture that we're in that negates that or doesn't validate these other means and methods of doing the exact same thing and going about the process in, you know, a near to identical way of finding and seeking and keeping a partner. Exactly. Yeah. And it's a good old glance gaze, you know, looking across the room, they look exactly. into your eyes, you look into the eye of, I wonder how that would work with uh, <laughs> us blind folk for sure. Uh, so I even, uh, Steph, like you were making mention on kind of the perspective when you look at uh, or kind of the outside world and those assumptions and those stereotypes. And in your own experience, and even maybe not perhaps even your own experience, but what you have seen, uh, how would you find kind of the disability community looking at the 2SLGBTQ community and even the other way around, vice versa? Like, what's your observation about that? So an interesting thing that I have found in the blind community, and maybe it's just folks that, that, that I, you know, came into contact with, um, is that 
there are people who are um, very religious within the blind community. Um, and so that can be challenging um, when people do find out that you are um, LGBTQ. To this day, I have somebody, um, it was uh, recently my birthday, and there's somebody that I know who is blind that I went to school with um, when I was in high school, who consistently every year sends me a message saying, Jesus loves you. Um, happy birthday. And, uh, you know, I hope you get healed from your, you know, um, your, I, I can't remember exactly how he phrases it, but around basically your, your uh, inappropriate sexual attractions. And it's like, it's, it's always kind of this thing every year. And it's like, I always ignore it. Um, but there are people just as outside of the blind community, there are people who will, um, who will judge um, kind of based on that. Um, and the blind community, just as with other um, folks within our society, um, does tend to look at things from a very heteronormative kind of perspective. So um, just being at maybe events that had nothing to do with um, LGBTQ anything and people saying, oh, um, you know, if I mentioned a partner saying, uh, well, what does what does he do for work or uh, where is he from? Um, and then having to kind of either choose to go with that um, or to kind of course correct and say, well, actually my partner is female, which then creates kind of this awkward silence. So uh, that's kind of on one hand with the disability community um, kind of uh, in my experience. And then on the other side of it with the LGBT community, uh, it really does depend on, on the city, but in a lot of places, especially in rural um, kind of communities and for context, I grew up in Northern Ontario. Um, so mm. fairly small, small communities. And a lot of the social events were when I was growing up uh, and even, even as an adult, were very much focused around the bar scene, which for somebody totally blind can be a bit challenging, um, I find to navigate. Um, so things like, being able to go in and you know to a situation like this and find people that uh, you know you want to hang out with um, even things like being able to find the bathroom right if, if the music's so loud that you don't know um, where you're going um, being able to orient yourself to the space um, those kinds of things it's really difficult um, and then a lot of the ways in which you know, things were and are communicated is visual. So I remember being in university and, you know, there were posters up uh, with Pride Week events. And so I needed to know who I could trust to ask what the poster said, because I wasn't able to read them. And this was also before the days of, you know, um, seeing AI and IRA and those types of things where I may have been able to bring up, um, but even to know where the posters were located. Um, I didn't necessarily know those things. Um, so it is very, very challenging to navigate um, these these communities when you consider um, kind of other aspects of your of, of your identity and I know other people have um, have struggled with that as well that I've that I've spoken with yeah and I know when we were speaking prior um, uh, to this podcast uh, making mention of a story utilizing orientation and mobility Yes. So um, one of the challenges with folks who are blind uh, is if we want to learn, you know, something new, we want to learn to access a new space, uh, you know, we may need help with that, depending on on where it is and how familiar we are and maybe how much sight we have and our comfort level um, learning these things. And so when I first came out in university and I was really struggling, um, it was not an easy process uh, for me. And I wanted to access, um, there was, I was at the university of Ottawa when I began my studies and uh, there there was a kind of a, a center they called it the pride center I don't know what they call it now um, but it was for LGBTQ um, people and it was on campus and I knew it was on campus and I knew there were signs indicating where it was on campus but again this was before the days of, of IRA and, and seeing AI and those types of things and so I did end up having to 
identify to my O&M instructor at the time that this was something that I needed help finding. And I remember being absolutely terrified um, to tell this gentleman that I was, you know, I was needing these services and I needed help finding the space. And finally, I just kind of blurted it out one day. And he was fantastic um, in his defense. He he did. He was like, oh, yeah, no problem. I can show you where that is and, and kind of calmed me down and was really, really good about the situation. Um, but I have heard of other, um, you know, kind of instances, um, people, and not even just in, in, in Canada, just folks that I've spoken to, whether it be in Canada or the United States, um, who are blind and who are LGBTQ identified where they did not get such a favorable mm -hmm. um, kind of response. So when they did ask for help, maybe finding a, a bar or a community center or something in their community that they needed in order to connect with the LGBTQ community, which is so important, um, you know, to be able to learn more about yourself and be able to feel um, that you have connections and that you can kind of get more into the culture to be able to be part of that community, that they have been met with um, either flat out refusal um, to show them where those things were, or with criticism of, oh, well, you shouldn't be looking for that, or that's not appropriate, or, you know, um, even giving people information on how they can, quote, change their uh, sexual orientation. Um, so, you know, there are, that that is a challenge, an additional challenge that people face around, um, and that's, it's so important, uh, you know, anyone who's a healthcare professional, um, you know, whether it's with um, vision loss rehab or, or anything else, just recognize recognizing that that's a really challenging thing to have to ask somebody mm -hmm. for, for you to be, you know, basically um, coming out, which I mean, coming out as a process, everybody comes out lots of times every day, you know, if they need to. Um, but that they that is an additional kind of um, challenge and that that's not an easy thing to ask. Um, and so being sensitive to that is just just so important. Very true. And it's almost a layer of another barrier to it where you're making mention of that comfort zone and even having the risk of maybe someone judging or maybe someone putting their own beliefs or their own opinions. So yeah, definitely a layer that I, I feel like the general public don't really realize or even the cross-disability community and organizations don't really realize kind of falls through the gaps. For sure. And I think a lot of pride organizations too, and I have noticed this more, um, usually in larger cities, but where there is like a number you can call to have somebody come and meet you. Um, because accessing uh, things like that, like, so if, if I wanted to go check out the parade, or I wanted to go check out an event, um, where they do have numbers now, um, a little bit more that you can you can actually call and have a volunteer either, you know, come and meet you or give you more specific instructions or that kind of thing. So I think we're learning um, in the LGBTQ community how to be more more inclusive but I do think there is um, there is some some ways to go on that and then same with um, you know on the on the disability side recognizing that we all do have we we may have um, similar disabilities but that we all have different experiences in terms of um, sexuality in terms of race and that kind of thing and I think we're starting we we're definitely on the right track um, but there is there is some 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 room to grow there I think what I hear you drawing attention to is the need for community and again, the choice to disclose. And it can be so difficult and challenging for people who are blind or partially sighted to find their community in the first place, navigating yeah. society and the way you are focusing on the ways that things are communicated so that communities can be found and entered like posters and bulletin boards and all of this visual rhetoric that is all around us that we can't access, which is difficult when you're a person with sight loss to begin with. But then to go deeper and have those be the primary methods to find a community within the community, which would be the LGBTQ plus to spirit community that just adds another level of complexity and difficulty and makes the struggle at times even more difficult. And um, I really think it's important that 
we emphasize that and draw attention to that because when you consider all of the identities, um, which is what we're all about here on the lens, it just can sometimes make finding that community more important and even more challenging. And then the challenge about disclosure or whether or not to disclose, or even if you have the choice to disclose, which is what you were speaking of, Steph, when you, um, you know, bravely asked for assistance from your O&M instructor and didn't know how that conversation would go, if he would be receptive, if you would get the resources, the assistance you needed, which are your right to receive, but to have to kind of expose yourself, whether you were prepared to or not, whether you want to or not, because somebody else then had the power to, you know, assist you, which again is, is something, you know, that makes me pause and, and really causes me to think about, um, the privilege that some of us have that don't have to navigate that barrier and what the power dynamic was in that moment. Unfortunately for you, it did work out and mm -hmm. you got the assistance and the services that you needed and you were able to find um, the resources you were seeking. But I know you and I have spoken before that for some people who aren't in larger centers who are concentrated in rural areas, this is maybe at times a life or death choice and they yes. may not. Um, be able to access what they need, as you were just saying, right, depending on where you're located. I don't know this um, kind of firsthand, but this is this is a particularly dangerous decision um, for our youth in the LGBTQ community um, who are blind or partially sighted because there is a chance when they out themselves to someone uh, in order to get help accessing services that they 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 need, um, that they could that the person that they disclose this to could turn around and tell their parents, and in there are parents who are not necessarily. Um, supportive of their children who are in in the community and so you know making sure too that when when that disclosure does happen that you know that's where it stops that you know you tell your your O&M or whoever it is that you need to tell and that they don't turn around if you're if you're under the age of 18 and let your parents know um and you know I'm all for um involving parents but there are times in these situations where that can be um, that can be a very dangerous thing to do um, so it's it's just really important um, especially for our youth and there are people too who they might uh, make that initial disclosure say to an O&M or something like that and it doesn't go well and that could really um, be something that would be very difficult to get over uh, and I could see you know it could be definitely life or death because you know if if you that's your last resort and you've tried and you were denied or you were told no um you know it, it can be it, it can be a trigger for folks for sure and then we bring up issues of privacy and consent right and i know mm -hmm. in the media recently there was a story about um school board was saying that in new brunswick uh teachers would have to get parental consent if their children wanted to be addressed in the way they identified rather than what their pronouns were at birth. And again, many students may not have come out to their parents and may only feel safe to identify with their chosen pronouns in school. And so taking this to another level to the school board who are who is then saying teachers must demand parental consent opens up a whole other conversation about consent, privacy, you know, the assertion of identity, your autonomy, yeah. how you choose to present and identify in the world. It's it's a very precarious and again, could be potentially life-threatening conversation and potentially life-threatening position that we're going to be putting youth in that may not be, you know, psychologically equipped to deal with all of this when they're trying to reconcile who they are anyway, right? 
and they need time to figure it out. Like that's yeah. the, that's the yeah. thing too, is that, um, you know, most, most people that, that I've met, and I know for myself, there was a very long period of struggle before I told everyone, anyone else. And I can definitely say that my, my family was not kind of first on that, that list. Love my family. They're, they are great. And we have, you know, um, kind of reconciled that and they're, they're kind of okay with it. They weren't so okay with it when I first came out, but they are now, um, for the most part. And that took a process to get through, but I wouldn't have been able to handle that process when I was first coming to terms with it myself. I can't imagine having to um, kind of navigate both those things at the same time. It's kind of, uh, it's a slow process for most people, um, I think. And and for some, their family may be their first, um, the first people that they're, they feel comfortable telling that. But I know for a lot of us, that's, that's not the case. And so we need to do some uh, exploration ourselves and within the community and, and with our friends as well. Um, kind of before we can uh, feel comfortable um, saying for sure, you know, this is this is who we are and this is how we feel. A great point that you uh, brought up, and um, I'm glad that you uh, made mention of your family and your your coming out story as well, because uh, as we were speaking prior, you have a very unique story to uh, where you where like how you grew up and then where you are now so if you could share if you don't mind sharing a little bit of uh that story yeah absolutely so um i grew up my my parents were um french catholic um so we you know we were uh for the most part easter and, and christmas catholics but they definitely followed more conservative um, values. My my dad is military, uh, or was um, for many many years. He's now retired. Um, you know, my mom worked uh, mostly in the home when I was younger, um, and they did have um, fairly conservative um, values. Um, and then when I was a teenager, um, I became very involved with the evangelical Christian church. Um, so, and my parents um, thought that was great. I was I was making friends. Um, you know, I was I was getting a and doing things. So even though it wasn't exactly the same, you know, they were okay with the fact that it wasn't Catholic, um, but they definitely encouraged that relationship that I had with the church um, growing up. And um, and so I was very, very um, kind of conservative in my thinking, um, in my views. And um, I decided strangely enough that I was going to go uh, and my, my my thought process behind it was I wanted to work in the women's shelters so I had finished college I had my social services worker diploma um, had done a placement in the shelters which is what made me interested in in continuing on with this um, kind of path of study so I decide I'm going to go take women's studies and psychology at university mm-hmm. um, and so I go off to university and I go to my first it was an introduction to what we called women's studies at the time now it's it's generally known as gender studies um and so i go to my very first class and what happens the teacher gets us to read a um an article on bisexuality and i left the class and didn't want anything to do with it because i was like nope can't think about this because that was very much a part of my brain that i had tried to shut off um any kind of um idea that, yeah, I might be attracted to people of the same gender. Um, I definitely had shut that down because I was in my mind, um, that was a sin and you don't, you don't think about that. And so here I am in this class where they're wanting me to read all about like intersectionality and, um, you know, things around, around, particularly around sexual orientation was a bit of a trigger for me. Um, And for whatever reason, and I still don't know really to this day why I didn't just drop the class and move on, but there were other things that that interested me about the class. And I guess I just, I was like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to persevere and, and go through this. And the more I went through it, the more I realized that, you know, maybe the problem wasn't with me. Maybe the problem mm-hmm. was with my way of thinking. Um, and so I eventually um, went to my professor's office hours and completely melted into a puddle. She was very kind. Um <laughs> <laughs> and uh, basically came out to her and, and and told her all of the things that I had kind of um, experienced um, kind of, you know, in high school and trying not to uh, not to come out and, and just kind of basically gave her my life story. And she just said, well, you know, um, it, it's up to you what you choose to do, but there's no, you know, hard, fast rule saying how to do this. Um, you know, you'll navigate this 
the way that is is best for you um and i did and you know it took me um time to come out fully but the more i kind of um got involved in the world of of social justice and learned about um different things i i not only learned a lot about myself but i learned learned a lot about everyone else too i became very interested in um indigenous um kind of issues and became really interested in learning kind of uh, about the treaties and that on the land um where i was um you know became very interested in critical race theory um, and critical disability theory. Um, and it was very interested in kind of having that become um, a big part of my uh, my work life. So one of the things that was important to me around joining the um, advocacy department was the idea that it's important that people all have equal rights regardless of their intersectionalities um, and their identity as someone with a disability, but also their other um, kind of identities. So have always um, since then looked what took it took time, of course, to evolve, um, but began to, to look at the world in that way um, and now of course I I can't not look at the world in that way um, but it was kind of an interesting journey for me because that was definitely not where I started out <laughs> yeah and we're so glad we have you in advocacy we're like about time like <laughs> <laughs> when you yeah when you first became part of the advocacy team and I like to joke around. We all joke around. Last time, I was like, "Yeah, you you knew about DNI before DNI was cool, you know." It's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah before it was a thing, so it's it's so amazing to have you on the team for sure. And uh, yeah, definitely, 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 you you offer so much, especially from the education experiences that you hold. With you making mention of uh, your your origin story or. No, not even origin story, just your story in general. Uh, you made mention at the top of the podcast about uh, your conservative household. So how was that experience being a person who was part of the 2SLGBTQ community? It was challenging. Um, and I definitely became very aware once I realized that I was that that wasn't necessarily something that I was going to change about myself. Once I realized that this was how it was going to be and that the, the best and safest way for me was to accept it um, and to, you know, embrace it uh, more than anything, I started to realize how very homophobic um, some folks were around me and unintentionally so um, is in, in a lot of cases, not in all cases, there were definitely people who were intentionally homophobic. But I remember just before I came out, um, sitting with my parents, and there was something on TV. Um, and it was two men kissing and my mom saying that's disgusting. And I remember just kind of needing to leave the room because I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, if she thinks that's disgusting, what's she going to say when I tell her that her daughter is currently dating a woman? <laughs> um, you know, and, and how is this going to go? Um, and it initially did not go well. Um, my actually it was funny because I thought my dad, um, who was very much he was in the military at the time, um, was very kind of um seemed more kind of conservative in his thinking. He was actually way more okay with it than my mom was at first. Um he kind of took a pause and said, Well, I want you to make sure that you're sure before you start telling lots of other people. So there was this kind of caution on his part, like, well, maybe you're wrong. Um, and make sure that you know know what you're talking about before you start going around saying that to people but he didn't kind of outright say oh this is wrong and this is bad and that kind of thing my mom did at first um she wasn't happy with it she kept saying this isn't right uh, I remember at one point her quoting the bible at me um over the phone and me hanging up on her um and you know we didn't speak for a few months after that um so it was very much a rocky road with them now my my parents and and I think they would be okay with me saying that they will never probably find themselves at a pride rally that's just not a place that they're going to end up um however they do um understand and accept that it's part of my life and that I'm not willing to or able to or interested in um kind of changing it um uh, and they they have come to accept that this is this is how it is um i don't know if i'll ever know 
really whether they they're actually okay with it or not but the outwardly now um we do have a good relationship and they you know they do seem to understand it was actually really funny i went home um well back to my parents i don't live with my parents anymore but uh, my dog's vet is still there and uh, my dog uh, guide dog had to have some teeth removed um so i went home with uh or went back to my parents um i still think of it as home sometimes even though i don't live there uh but went back with my dog um and my my partner who is uh he, he is male but he's very very accepting of uh my identity and i was wearing these shoes that were um they were in the pride colors um and uh my dad says to me those are really nice shoes where did you get them um and he knew darn well that they were <laughs> they were the pride colors but he was just okay with it um and that was kind of his way of expressing that um so every once in a while they they're very um they've come to accept it, I think, but I think it was a journey for them too. Um, because when I first, and I think what it came down to is they didn't want my life to be any harder than it already was. They already mm. knew that I was going to have lots of challenges because I was blind. And I think for them, it was just almost adding an additional challenge. So, you know, even if they put aside their, their own beliefs, um, about whether it was right or wrong, um, you know, and, and that kind of thing, even if they were to accept it on that level, there was this other level of accepting that, you know, this might be an additional challenge for their child. And I really do think that that's where it was coming from, um, that it was coming from a, a good place. I didn't really see it that way. Then it took me, um, you know, growing a little bit more to be able to understand that, um, and their perspective on it, but I'm sure that's, now, looking back, that's where it was coming from. I, I do believe that. That's a huge, huge point right there. The fact that probably in some people's mindsets, it's that stereotype or it's that uh, assumption that uh, being part of the community is, oh, you, you choose to be a part of the community, right? Yes. And why are you trying to make your life harder? So that is a really, oh, that's an epic point that... <laughs> really needs to be discovered for sure. And I definitely had people outside of my parents, definitely within, when I came out, I lost a lot of friends. Um, I was very, very involved in the um, evangelical church. And for anyone who does, um, it's not just church on Sundays. Um, you know, there's there's church on Sunday and then there's Bible study on Tuesday. And then I helped with youth group on Friday and, you know, church again on Wednesday. Um, so it was a very, very big part of my life. Um, and it was a situation where people really did feel that way, that I could just pray mm -hmm. the gay away and it would be fine. And um, I, I was not, I, I wasn't able to do that. And I think because, um, you know, I was starting to get a really good education around, I, I just knew that that wasn't really possible deep down. I, I just knew that that wasn't going to work. And so I think I went to like one session and then I, I was just like, nope, I'm not going to be able to do this. This doesn't make sense to me um, because I was, I, I, as part of my education at that time, I had learned kind of a little bit more about science and psychology and how things worked. And I just, even though I did have that part of my brain that was like, well, maybe that is what I need to do. I just knew that it wasn't going to make sense. It wasn't really going to work. Um, and so I kind of gave it like a half-hearted try for a little while and then was like, this is dumb. I'm not going to be able to do this. This is not going to work for me. Um, and then just had to tell people like, I'm sorry, but if you don't like this about me, then, you know, you basically are telling me you don't like who I am. And so I did uh, make the decision um, to step away from the church, which was really, really challenging. But in doing so, um, I had more time for some of my kind of social justice um, things that I was becoming involved with. Um, and I did make friends and found community elsewhere. Um, but that was a really difficult transition for someone who had found community um, kind of in the church and then had to kind kind of, um, you know, make some, some pretty significant life changes um, in order to feel comfortable with myself. I was very lucky because even after I, I, I came out, um, you know, I wasn't living uh, with my parents when I did, but, you know, a year or so after I moved back in with them and they allowed me to do that, like even knowing, um, but I do know people, both blind and sighted, um, who are members of the, of the LGBTQ community who came out and then they were told, you're not welcome here. We oh, don't yeah. have a yeah. son or daughter or child anymore. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I will say that 
out of the scenarios that could have happened, it definitely wasn't an easy go for me, but I've definitely seen worse like that, that other people have had to experience for sure. I know you spoke about the social justice yes. aspect, and I really want to know how that transformed the way you look at life after taking that social justice course. So I think for me, with the with the social justice um, kind of aspects, I think what I really learned, um, you know, and there was this, uh, you know, when I when I did a lot of, um, particularly in terms of gender studies, a lot of reading, you know, you'd constantly see this idea that the personal is political, um, and that you know everybody has a story, and those stories all fit together, um, and that that's you know that's how society you know is the way it is, and I think I just got really curious about what other people's stories were and the different challenges that um, that people faced um, and just really wanted to learn um, about other people's stories and so I, I did that I, I read a lot um, but also just kind of got involved with different things um, you know wanted to learn about the experiences um, you know of, of people of color in in Canada um, you know learned a lot about history um, you know learned a lot about um, the history of, 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 of disability rights not only um, folks who are blind or had low vision, but around, you know, developmental disability in Canada and how, you know, um, in a lot of cases, people are still fighting for equal rights um, in those um, in, in those kind of uh, areas of their life as well, as far as being able to make free decisions. Um, a lot of my interest as far as social justice does go back to that intersection um, of disability and sexuality, because traditionally in society, we really have, and I, this would be a, probably a whole other podcast, I could probably mm -hmm. go on for an hour just about that, um, but around how we really have um, made it very difficult as a society for um, for some people with disabilities, more so, um, you know, some than others, but, um, you know, to, to have sexual freedom, um, you know, to be able to make choices about who they, um, you know, who they're with and, and, and having the opportunity to have those kinds of relationships. Um, and that we have as a society traditionally made it very difficult um, for people with disabilities. Um, and because of that, I became very involved um, when I worked for a while, I worked in group homes um, as a developmental services worker. Um, and, you know, I was the one I was working with adults. They were all adults. They were actually in their fifties and sixties. They were older than me. And I was the person they'd come to, you know, uh, in a lot of cases, they'd be like, Oh, uh, you know, we need condoms or whatever. And I was that person, right. I was always the person that was very comfortable um, with that. Um, when I worked with children and youth, again, I was very, very conscious of, you know, learning people's pronouns, um, of just respecting, and I think that's what it comes down to, is just respecting one another um, and respecting other people's um, identities and autonomy, um, and that people do, people know who they are, um, and giving them the space to figure that out in whatever way is best for them, um, and that was always my focus um, when I worked with uh, worked with kids as well. So um, I think it really just changed the way I, I looked at the world and that I understood that everyone had a story um, and that I wanted people to be able to express themselves uh, in, in the way that was that was best for them um, and wanted people to to have the freedom to make uh, you know their own choices and to live their own lives um, the way that they wanted to without uh, without restrictions from you know society or or anyone else I mean within reason of course we but you know the, the that people have a right to make their own choices, um, no matter what their kind of ability or what their story is. Well said. Well said. So we are already out of time, and this is the part of the show that I hate because <laughs> it's such amazing conversation, and then we have to like cut it off. Uh, but before we do, do you have any? last uh, parting advice, comments, uh, anything that the listeners should think about, especially how you highlighted upon your journey, your story, and all the experiences that came in between from uh, then to now? I think just for folks who are um, particularly young people uh, who are part of the LGBTQ community who may be um, also blind um, or partially sighted, please reach out for help. And, you know, if you are told no or you are, you know, maybe get a response that you don't like, please don't give up. There are people out there who want to help. 
um, and who can help. Um, and definitely just, just keep reaching out and you will find that person um, and you will find your people. Um, it might take you some time, but you will, you'll get there. Um, and it's just, it's just really important uh, to hang in there and, and get the help and the support um, that you need. Um, so definitely ask for that. Um, and definitely as far as um, I mentioned before around, you know, healthcare providers, um, you know, if you are um, somebody who's, who's an O&M or even just, you know, people living in the world who interact with other people, be mindful of, of, of language, right? We tend to look at things in a very um, heteronormative way, and that can put people in very awkward situations. Even, you know, I'm thinking, you know, you're having conversations at work and, you know, talking about uh, what you, you do on the weekend and somebody mentions a partner or whatever and making the assumption, um, you know, that the person is of the opposite gender, um, trying not to make those assumptions because it does make it harder then for people to backtrack and, um, you know, having to uh, having to out themselves when they may not uh, they may not want to do that yet or, you know, um, for some people ever at, at work um, or, you know, in a in a public context um, and that that's okay. Um, so just, I guess, being mindful and I, I think the bottom line is just respecting, uh, respecting each other and each other's identities and just, you know, taking time to learn about each other. It's such an important, uh, an important thing to do in order to make sure that everyone is able to feel um, comfortable and supported um, and to find uh, that community, which is just such an important part of being human. Well, thank you, Stephanie, so much for joining us on The Lens today. It was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. I am so grateful that we were able to spend this time with you and just be receivers of your wisdom and your hopefulness, your honesty in sharing your story. Thank you for, you know, your positivity in encouraging anyone out there who's struggling to keep reaching, keep searching, you will find the help and the resources and the people that you need. And thank you so much for your suggestions to all of us to just be mindful, thoughtful, and present when we are speaking with people and just acknowledge what you know, we are being told if if we are being asked to use pronouns, let's respect each other and use the pronouns that people are telling us they prefer. That small gesture can do so much to just affirm that we see you, we hear you, we validate you. And that in and of itself can just form a connection that can be so powerful with just, you know, this seemingly little gesture of affirming someone's identity and letting them know you accept them and you are open to having them present themselves to the world in the way that they choose. So thank you so much, Steph, for this conversation. And I definitely hope we can have you back. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Yeah. So once again, Steph, thank you for coming on the lens living diverse. And once again, thank you for the listeners of the lens living diverse if you like today's episode, today's fabulous episode, don't hesitate in subscribing to your favorite platforms, which include Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, SoundCloud, and many more different platforms. Also, if you are interested in getting to know more about diversity and inclusion within the CNIB, you could visit the CNIB webpage and click on Advocate. And then click on We Are CNIB. Once again, We Are CNIB. And lastly, if you are interested to be on the show or have any uh, questions or any feedback you have for the Lens Living Diverse, don't hesitate to email us at advocacy at cnib.ca. Once again, advocacy at cnib.ca. So once again, Thank you for listening to The Lens. I was one of your hosts, Ben, along with my wonderful co-host, Vivi. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Peace.